Hey everyone, and welcome to the Americana Station Podcast. I am your host, Will Payne Harrison. I'm so glad that you're here today. Um, we have Bob Hillman on the podcast, and we will get into that. He has a new record out called Inside and Terrified. But uh, first, I want to ask that you do me a huge, huge favor. It'll take you 30 seconds. Can you just uh, click the five-star review if you're on Apple Podcasts and rate and review? Just say, hey, this is a great podcast. You know, just just a little uh, note. And uh, that helps so much with the algorithms and pushing us up further into the podcast categories. So when people are searching for Americana podcasts, we pop up a lot sooner. So that would be super awesome if you could just take 30 seconds to do that. I would be more than appreciative of that. Um, Like I said, today we've got Bob Hillman on the podcast. Um, On the next episode, we also have Strays Don't Sleep. I've got Cody Howell, the Nashville Noise editor. She's going to be on an Off the Rails episode coming up. And uh, Robert Henry as well. We also have some others uh, that I haven't done yet. Um, I'm trying to get as many as I can out by the end of the year. Normally, I've been doing one a month. I'm, I think I'm up to two or three a month right now, and it's it's incredible. And I'm I'm really excited to get uh, all this content out to you. I hope that you uh, are enjoying it. Um, feel free to send me a little shout out on Twitter. I'm at Will P Harrison, uh, and also at Americana Station No A uh, on Twitter, and then I'm uh, at Will Payne Harrison on Instagram as well. So uh, if you want to send a little shout out, tell me what you like, what you'd like to see, um, any sort of thing like that, that would be super uh, appreciative. Uh, Today on Twitter, I asked uh, some of my followers what their favorite protest song was, uh, because the elections are coming up. There's a lot of protesting going on, and I just wanted to see uh, what's been on people's radars. And Ottawa Glow, at Ottawa Rick, said... uh, since I was a kid, Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. I remember the day vividly. Um, Catherine at K Cat Dog uh, says Patty Smith. Uh, People have the power. Uh, Emily and uh, it's got some underscores, but it's at Emily Smith. Uh, Changed by Mavis Staples. That's a great one. Um, and Frank Keith, he says uh, Mellencamp's Pink Houses. Some uh, some great protest songs. And uh, if you have any tweet me let me know what you what your favorite protest song is i actually just got a couple more in um people are slowly trickling in but uh susan asiati i think i said that right at adventure sue one says your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore by john prine i'm glad somebody said that that's one of my favorites and then uh high life living one that's uh zach he says Masters of War by Bob Dylan, which is also another one of my favorites. So I'm really glad that uh, those two came in uh, clutch last minute. And then Strange DeBill uh, says, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? As always, I have uh, my Americana Highways Backroads playlist available on Spotify. Uh, I just recently updated it, and it includes uh, Stephen Dunn, Sierra Hull, Sturgill Simpson, Dirk Powell, um, who's from Louisiana as well, I believe. Uh, Malin Peterson just put out a new record. Bob Hillman, of course. Betsy Phillips, Strays Don't Sleep. Uh, There's 25 new songs on there for you to check out. They're all great. Um, And uh, some of them are alumni of the Americana Station podcast. So make sure you go check it out. It's a great playlist. I update it once a month, about the middle of the month. So there's always new music and new songs on there. Uh, so check that out. I also uh, update a new honky tonk uh, playlist. It's a 
it's a new school honky tonk is what it's called. So if you're searching on uh, Spotify, it's new school honky tonk and it's got uh, boots in the picture. And uh, recently updated with Robert Henry, who will be on the podcast, uh, Gabe Lee, Kyle Nix, Michaela Ann, Zephaniah O'Hora, Alice Wallace, so many great honky-tonk people that are on this playlist, um, Arlo McKinney. So check out that one as well if you're more into honky-tonk, but uh, you don't you need some new, uh, some new blood that you haven't heard yet. I, I'm uh, trying to curate some of the up-and-comers in the honky-tonk Ameripolitan scene. Um, and uh, without further ado, uh, let's get into Bob Hillman today. I'm going out to the great highway where I can almost see the stars. Bob Hillman, a San Francisco singer-songwriter, is well into the second act of a career that began in the late 1990s, flourished in the early 2000s, and survived 10 years in real jobs. Bob got his start in the mid-90s in New York City, where he fell in with Jack Hardy's long-running songwriter group, which met every Monday night in Greenwich Village to eat pasta and share new songs. In the late 90s and early 2000s, Bob released three albums and toured extensively in the United States and Europe. Most notably, he was featured on Suzanne Vega's entire Songs in Red and Grey tour, playing venues like the Fillmore Auditorium. Bob has also played Newport Folk Fest and shared the stage with the likes of Todd Snyder, Dave Allen, Mary Goche, Ray Wiley Hubbard, and a lot more. This is wild. Without further ado, here's Bob Hillman. There have been accidental drownings When people exercise the right To go out swimming in the ocean All alone All right. Uh, thanks so much for being on, man. Um, again, I apologize for being late. I've literally never been late to one of these. I... I'm on time. And that was always a problem in show business because I would get to the sound check when they asked me to get to the sound check, which was <laughs> two hours early relative to when everyone else arrived. You're, you're one of those people. It's always on time. It's not great. If you're a singer songwriter, it's better if you're like in business. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, well, my mom was uh, raised a military kid. And so it was always like, five minutes late or five minutes early is on time and five minutes late is way too late, which is a very wild uh, thing to be as a musician on time. It requires reorientation. And even when I try to be late, I'm usually early relative to the others. Yeah. Um, so how, how's it been going? You just released an EP and you're releasing another one. Yes. I have a philosophy and that is release as much music as I can as fast as I can while still being responsible and thoughtful about it. And so starting a few years ago, I just started trying to execute the projects I had in my mind. And so let's see, my older son is an eighth grader now. When he was in fourth grade, I remember getting the first rough mix for the project that comes out in December, which is called Bob Hillman and Spooky Ghost. 
that one started that long ago and wow. just wrapped up. But the thought behind it was I had a vision to do a collaboration with a guitar player named Jerry Leonard. He was into it and then took forever because he was on the road with other artists. And so it goes to show if you, if you think of something, it may not happen for a long time. So you have to think of other things too. And in the meantime, uh, it occurred to me to do a, another quick EP once lockdown started and I had various batches of songs brewing and the most compelling seemed to be the COVID songs. Yeah. I know I'm probably one in a thousand people who had that same realization at that exact moment. Right. Yeah. You know, but whatever, what am I supposed to do about it? Those were the best songs I had in my opinion that I had, let's say five of. And so that one and the, Bob Hillman and Spooky Ghost one, which started four years ago, uh, basically were finished on the same day. Wow. And you so, didn't want to just make it a full length. They're too well, different. They're, for- they're extraordinarily different. Yeah. The one that I released a couple of weeks ago, Inside and Terrified, is as close to folk as I've ever been. I've always been in the folk scene, actually, but I've always been on the sort of the Elvis Costello side of folk music. Yeah with backbeat this album inside and terrified has drums but they're super musical and creative and all over the place as opposed to having a consistent backbeat and there's a lot of nylon there's nylon string guitar a beautiful nylon string guitar on every track it's just a quieter record the other record is noise folk the concept Mm. for that one is acoustic guitar and vocals performed by me and soundscapes performed by Jerry Leonard, who also goes by spooky ghost. Okay. So they're extremely different. Nylon, quiet nylon string guitar, super noisy screeching electric guitar. Awesome. A hundred dollar budget. It says on the, (laughs) is that true? Well, I mean, I did say that, um, if you read further, well, uh, let me let me put that in context. So when I when it, when I want when we were locked down, I didn't think I had never considered recording at home. I never wanted to be a recording engineer. Yeah, I didn't feel like I had the technical skills, and I know what a rabbit hole is. And so I figured, you know, after five after the first five thousand dollars, you just stop counting. Right. But <laughs> this has happened to me many times in my career and especially recently is that after thinking that for a while, I changed my perspective and realized I can probably just do it because technology is at such a point where we can all just kind of do what we want. When I made my comeback album, I'm comebacks in quotes in 2016, the publicist I hired told me I had to make videos because that was the, had become the coin of the realm. Yeah. And I panicked because that just seemed, you know, seemed like dollar sign, dollar signs in my head. So then, much money. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you want to do it, let's, I don't even know if saying doing it right is the right thing, but just to do it the way I was thinking of it. And by the way, at that point, I'd been out of the business for like 10 to 15 years. And so everything had changed dramatically. I hadn't even made videos the first time around. Yeah. But this, this time he, he sent me, the publicist sent me a couple of examples and then I, immediately I was like, this is no problem. And so I got my brother-in-law and we went to, I had a song called Big Sur at the time and I live in San Francisco. So I got my brother-in-law, we just cruised down to Big Sur and shot a bunch of footage. And then I learned iMovie and it took me, you know, which of course, as you know, takes like an hour. Yeah. So 
you know, I realized at that time I could make videos better than probably better than some of the examples that he sent me. So I had a, the same experience with home recording where, I mean, I ran into a friend, a parent at our school. I ran into him like at a restaurant wearing masks, doing takeout early in the lockdown. And he convinced me, he told me what I needed. He said he would lend me a microphone, uh, you know, a perfectly decent microphone and that I could probably figure out how to home record in two or three hours. And, you know, he was completely right. It just isn't that hard. If you have a decent microphone, an interface, I had an interface that I found in the closet that I'd bought at some point. And then I just used GarageBand. I had to buy a shock mount for the microphone because his was broken. And that was the hundred dollars that I referenced ah. in my bio. I did have to spend like $5,000 on musicians, right. mixing and mastering. So I did a Kickstarter for that, but still it was, you know, it was a, a pretty cost efficient process, certainly on my end. I, I now know I could make a, an acoustic record if I wanted to. I'd still have to pay someone to mix it though, because that's, that's a rabbit hole. I'm still not going down. Maybe you can convince me that it, it'll take me two hours to learn that, but I'm not sure that. It, Ooh, that I don't know about that. I, I did the <laughs> mastering on mine. Um, now granted we're in, uh, we're in lockdown. So I have plenty and plenty of time to learn all these things, but uh, I would say, and, and I've mixed before, so that's unfair. I didn't learn mixing in, um, in lockdown, but I did learn mastering and that took probably a couple of weeks to, to really wrap my head around. Hmm. It's actually not that bad. Yeah. But the mixing, I enjoy the, learning those sorts of things, but I'm still at the point where I'm going to outsource mixing and mastering, but yeah, it was a, a relatively inexpensive, the, both of these projects, I feel like I'm getting out the door for a, a fair price. I, I yeah. have a publicist for one of the projects the Bob Hillman and Spooky Ghost Project, because it's so different. I don't really know where to start. But I acted as my own publicist and radio promoter and everything else for Inside and Terrified because it was a quieter record. I've always been in folk and Americana, and so I at least knew where to, where to start and maybe who to look up on the internet. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you said you're, you kind of, in 2016, you came back. You did your uh, comeback tour and, all, and, and release. Um, so when did you originally get started? It was the early 2000s? Yeah, I landed in New York in let's call it the mid '90s. Okay, and my songwriting learning curve was around that time. Um, there's a lot to talk about in that time, but I'll skip over to 1999 when my first album came out. Uh, I put another one out in 2001, and in 2001, 2000, 2001, that was the so-called peak of my career. I had I'd kind of gotten to like the the top of the opening act heap. Yeah. In the Northeast and all over the place. I was opening for, I was kind of like in the singer songwriter realm and opening for the folk, the, the, the leading lights in folk music of the time. Uh, people like Dan Byrne, uh, Lucy Kaplansky, Susan Werner, Ellis Paul, Northeast folkies. folkies. Yeah. And, but then I, I was friends with Suzanne Vega. I'd become friends with Suzanne Vega through a songwriters meeting I was involved with. Every Monday night, we met at Jack Hardy's apartment in the, in the West Village and presented a new song for feedback. I went to that for years, and that was my training ground. Yeah. And Suzanne came, had been a part of that when she was really young, like a teenager, before Luca had been a hit. She disappeared for a while to go do her stardom thing, but then she had a kid and had 
significantly slowed down and came back to the meeting as sort of a jumpstart to the writing project she had in mind. And so we became friends and I eventually ended up opening for her for about a year on the Songs in Red and Gray tour. And so I went all over the US and all over Europe a couple of times uh, with Suzanne Vega playing 500 to at least maybe once we played 2,500 seats in Belgium, but that was really a, I was going to say trial by fire, but that's not quite right. It was just really fun. But in around 2003, it wasn't clear to me that I had a bright future in folk music. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had done all these shows with Suzanne and I sold lots of CDs at those shows. The audience reactions were excellent. You know, unless I'm completely missing the point, they, people were really liking what I was doing. And in fact, I still get lots of emails, not lots. I get periodic emails from people who saw me everywhere from Cleveland, Cleveland to Germany saying that's when they first heard my music and been following me ever since. Yeah. But I wasn't getting the proper signals from the business side of things. The, you know, like Josh Ritter started at the same time as me and yeah. he, you could just see what was happening with Josh Ritter or even like um, another guy that started with me was Mark Arelli. Like Mary Gaucher was like a bit ahead of me and you could just see what was happening with those people. And it was not exactly what was happening to me. And even though I was opening for, even though I played the Newport Folk Festival, I remember Suzanne Vega connected me with someone in the business. We got on the phone. She thought this person could help me. And what he said first was, I'm not even sure why I'm talking to you right now. Wow. <laughs> so that was the kind of signal that I was getting in response, you know, in, in contrast to the audience reaction. And so in 2003, I found myself living in Iowa City, Iowa, because my wife was going to the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is an MFA program. And I just decided that I was 33 years old. And I decided that if I was going to do something different, maybe now, maybe that was a good time, you know, before it was too late to become otherwise employable. <laughs> so, uh, like I literally went from opening for Suzanne Vega at the Fillmore in early August on the last tour I did with her to being in business school in late August. And they put us in these groups, like teams to do projects. And in my team was a guy who was like, I think I know you. And he had seen me open for Todd Snyder at his school like a wow. year before. And it kind of came crashing down in that moment. But I stuck with it and eventually worked as a marketing, like a brand manager for something like 10 years. I was the brand manager for Formula 409 at Clorox. I was the brand manager for Glad Plastic Containers. I knew everything about plastic containers. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that went on. And eventually, eventually I just that sort of ran its course for me. You know, I wasn't like the perfect person for corporate America. I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't, it, it just wasn't like where I was at, where it was at for me in the long term. Right. And I eventually, I've been friends with Peter Case for a long time. A lot of people will know who Peter Case is, a great songwriter from the Plimsolls and a long solo career. I've known him for a long time. And I, it occurred to me one I was sitting in a cubicle one morning and it occurred to me that I should, get Peter to produce an album for me, which over a course of like a year or two eventually happened. And that was my comeback album, Lost Soul in 2016. 
That's awesome. I do have a question. If the timeline is right, it seems like having a son, did that somewhat affect you getting a full-time gig too? It was in the mix. I, I dropped out before I had, I have two kids now, sixth okay. and eighth. I dropped out of music before that, but somewhat in anticipation of that. Really, I, I was seeing the future. And I, when, I, when you live in Iowa City, the, the most famous songwriter ever to come out of Iowa City is Greg Brown. And when you look at Greg Brown's career, it was a, it was a grind for many years, like, you know, yeah. 100, 150 dates on the road. And, and he was like wildly successful. He was eventually playing Irving Plaza in New York City. I think they put seats down, but that's like a thousand seat venue, you know, or he played two shows at the bottom line, 500 seats each and sell them both out. That was like, that was the top of the line. And I just didn't see myself, if I'd been getting different signals from the business, I probably would have grinded it out. Yeah. But, um, you know, if you, you know what happens like uh, when you go on the road, like you're divorced, everything goes south, like, you know, within the first week. (laughs) Uh, so I, I anticipated that I wouldn't want that to happen to me. And so I made a really dramatic shift. I'm very proud of it. And, you know, it helped me think about my music career a lot differently when I came back. Like I have a much more strategic approach. Right. Uh, I'm much better able to plan and get things done. Back in the early days, I was more of like the self-promotion is shameful Goes yeah. in that camp, you know. I know a lot and, of people that way. Yeah, yeah, and like it, it's, you know, I was. It's not that I was not promoting myself. Of course, I wanted to have a career in it, but uh, you know, you kind of learn like, okay, this is what you have to do to get the word out there. And once you've been in like a brand management type job, your perspective, your perspective develops. And now, in 1999 to 2003, that area where you said you were kind of peaking. The, the, the internet was a completely different landscape too. So you, how are you, um, how is it different now that you've come back since 2016 compared to like, you know, that around early 2000s area where like maybe I shoot, I don't even know what was happening back then. Was it like my, no, MySpace mm-hmm. wasn't until like 2004. No, it was MySpace. MySpace. I remember getting a MySpace account towards the end there and I did not enjoy MySpace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't like figure it out or really particularly care about it. Back in those days and for a long time before that, the only way you could get into music was to get a record deal. Yeah. Now that that may be slightly hyperbolic, but it's it's actually pretty close to the reality. You needed someone to anoint you and say, "All right, we hear this. We're going to we're going to help you and we're going to open the doors." There was really no other way to reach people. Um what was great upon my return was that there were all these different ways to connect with people. And even though I still feel very much like a, a very small drop in a very large bucket, because it seems like everyone's a singer songwriter now and everyone's trying to open the same doors back then, if someone paid attention to you, at least they actually could, in many cases, they could help you. It's great that you can help yourself now, but there's so much competition for people's eyes and ears that it does still seem frustrating Yeah, in a similar way, right? It's still like very hard to open doors. However, now there's actually some action you can take. And I love the empowerment associated with those actions. Like 
you can do something. You don't have to just sit there and wait for the phone to ring or whatever right. small things you could do. You can like go on social media and interact with people and, you know, keep the musical conversation going. You can, you can make a video, you can email people. Back in the day, you could call people, you could call radio stations and all that, but it just, it's all, it's all a lot more accessible now. And so even though it may be, when the rubber meets the road, it may be just as hard as it was back then. Probably that hasn't changed. It feels like there's something you can do and that makes it less daunting. Yeah. And I think that like, so I started, I was more in like an indie scene in about 2002, 2003 on that front end of my space. And I didn't really know what I was doing back then because I was in college, but uh, it, it, I remember when MySpace came out and I didn't have to make phone calls anymore to book gigs. That was like the best thing in the world for me. But now just looking like how rudimentary it was back then, even versus now where like, I, like I go out and I'll play for maybe, you know, 50 people and maybe three or four of those will actually buy merch and maybe a couple of those will follow you on social media, but you can go on, especially, I don't know how it is for you with, but uh, I, you know, we've interacted on Twitter. Twitter has been fantastic for like gaining a new fan base for me where um, you're just, you're interacting with people in a very natural environment. And then some, some people that just tend to be fans will listen to your music and start buying your merch and start supporting you and start telling their friends about it. Um, because it's like just the right environment, you know, for me, for Twitter, some people it's different. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like if you can present yourself authentically in those areas, which you do, then people know it's not bullshit. Yeah. And eventually after X interactions, maybe they are curious. I myself listen to people's music after a few Twitter interactions. If right. they, if people like, I don't know, I, I don't mean to use this word exactly, but like impress me, if they appeal to me with what they're saying, then I become interested in what they're saying in their art and I'll go check it out. Right. It's a great, you know, I actually find like, I feel like Twitter, I, I, I'm interested in the musical. One thing I miss, not just in lockdown, but in my life in general, I miss interaction with other songwriters and musicians. I don't have as much of that as I used to. Yeah. And Twitter to an extent, more than any other social media platform scratches that itch and I can develop new relationships that who knows what they will hold in the future. I'm not angling for anything, but I do know for a fact based on experience that any relationship you develop could bear fruit. I mean, I, I sent Peter Case my first set of demos on CD to a PO box on the back of one of his albums in like 1997. And he produced my album in 2016. So, you know, I like, I play a long game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a real long game, but you know, it, it's, it's the, it's those things that you seem really insignificant in the moment that really do matter in the long run, you know? Yeah. Just being yourself and being cool and being enthusiastic about your interests and listening, all those things, build the kind of relationships that bear fruit in the long run. So you're in California now, currently in LA? Uh, no, I grew up in LA. Okay. Uh, I went to college in the Bay Area and I'm back in San Francisco okay. now. Yeah. But I, I spent my formative 20s and early 30s in New York City. After that, we spent a bunch of time in Iowa City for academic reasons. And then we came back to San Francisco. 
So with uh, the fires and, and COVID and everything like that, I imagine you're not able to get out very much. Are they even doing live performances in uh, San Francisco? No. Are they doing live performances anywhere? Yes. <laughs> in the South, yes. Huh, maybe I'm in more of a bubble than I thought. Yeah. People are pretty cool about that stuff. People are pretty serious about those kinds of things, you know, wearing masks and socially distancing out here in San Francisco. There's a promoter out here, Casey Turner, who does all the singer songwriter kind of shows that aren't, that aren't Fillmore size. He's got a new thing where he's presenting artists in people's driveways. Yeah. But that's, that's as much as I've seen. Everything, everything here is postponed. You know, the, the, the air is just, you know, your air has COVID in it, but ours has COVID and deadly smoke. Yeah. And there are some days Perhaps you remember the, the the day that the Bay Area was had turned orange. Yeah, yeah, like that was very very apocalyptic. That was a very apocalyptic situation, and we haven't had that. And in fact, it rained a bit last night, so the air is perfect today. But you know, there are days where you can't go outside and play sports with your kids because it's too dangerous for a multitude of reasons. And wow. those are those days are very, are very discouraging. You know you. You just wonder why we wouldn't, let's say, acknowledge global warming or, uh, you know, do whatever it takes to like get out of that situation ASAP. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've, I've, yeah, I've seen some, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I've also seen that there's been some sort of uh, a lot of people just fighting on the streets and stuff in that area too, as well. Fighting on the streets. Yeah, I saw some uh, some videos of people <laughs> getting. I don't know if it was over masks or what, but I huh. saw some some crazy fights going on in San Francisco. You know, um, that's Street a different brawls. corner of the internet from the one I inhabit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have not seen anything like that. I will say, people are very self righteous in San Francisco. Yeah, and it's the kind of place where someone could shame you for not only. Let's, so not wearing a mask is one thing, but you know someone could potentially shame you for wearing the wrong kind of mask. It's a, a very it's a, a, a type of shaming that comes from the far left, as yeah. opposed to you know. So uh, I have not had that ex- any of those kinds of experiences here. There are areas of San Francisco where people are gathering a bit, like um, like the Great Highway, which goes up up and down Ocean Beach, is closed to cars, and so. There tend to be a lot of people walking and riding and crossing to go to the beach and stuff. And I still, I have not seen one negative interaction, even where people are congregating somewhat unsafely. Well, you know how the news is. The news always makes it worse, look worse than it is sometimes. So it it could just be one of, you know, you see stuff on Twitter and it's like, oh, not only is California on fire, everybody's fighting. <laughs> right, right. Yes, that's a, a bold extrapolation. Yeah. Uh, so what what are what do the plans look like for you for performing? I know most people are not doing anything until 2021, maybe even 2022. Are you are you looking to promote these records uh, eventually with live performances? Or is it mostly just streaming and, and online for now? I don't have any plans to perform live. I sure like performing live, but sure, yeah. because I'm the main child childcare guy in our household, it's always been a bit hard for me to get out on the road. And in fact, the lockdown is somewhat 
helpful to someone like me. <laughs> you know, it's a, there's like a playing field leveling that's occurring because no one can go on the road. And so I don't yeah. feel like I'm at a disadvantage. I say that in, when I say that, I know I make it sound like it's a zero sum game. There's room for everyone, but I do feel like I'm not missing out on anything, which is a feeling that I often have. Yeah. Um, you know, I, cause like if some, like if, if someone invited me on a, let's say like some amazing act invited me on a one month tour where I had to be gone, I think I would probably have to say no. I'd probably end up saying yes, but depending on, you know, I'd probably figure out a way to do it. My wife would be cool about it, but that would not be a great move by me. So, you know, I, I kind of like this idea of moving everything online. Um, you know, my promotion's all going to be, you know, trying to get written about, maybe get a few spins on the radio. That's not, that's, I find that to be very, very challenging. And maybe I'll do a live stream or two, although I haven't done one of those since, since June, but, um, you know, I'm going to, if people start booking shows and someone asks me to do something, I'll probably say yes, but boy, has that been, boy, has that been quiet. It's, it's really strange and you feel really awkward too, because, uh, you know, I have had opportunities even now, like I said, here in, uh, Tennessee, people are, some people are acting like nothing's even happening and, and you, you do get asked occasionally for like something that you would love to do, but I've just kind of, I just made a resolution to just wait until 2021 pretty much um, unless it would just felt really, really safe, you know, cause I did do uh, in Georgia, we did uh, a show at uh, Eddie Owens presents at red clay music foundry, but uh, there were only, I think 35 tickets available for like a 200 and something <laughs> cap venue, you know, and then it was streamed online and we still got paid well because of the stream streaming online. They have really good cameras and stuff, but um. Yeah, I just I I don't want to risk it at all. So it's it's a weird. It's just and I hate streaming online. Honestly, I've I think I've said that a couple of times on the podcast. It's just not my cup of tea at all. You know, I I didn't think it would be my. You know, the th- the theme of this interview perhaps is um, my thinking one thing and then changing my mind. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't think I would like live streaming, but I I did one through this venue here that was doing a series, and then I did my own as a Kickstarter launch. And I really, I really enjoyed it. I was able to set up in a nice scenario. My wife has two computer monitors so I could see everything really clearly. Oh, good. And everyone showed up, you know, it was my 50th birthday and it was my Kickstarter launch. And so, you know, everyone, I, mean, I still only had like 80 or 90 people, but it was a good audience, you know? You That's see a huge lot of, for online streaming. Yeah you, yeah, yeah, you see ones with like 10. And so I was really happy to have all those people there. People were interacting like crazy in the comments. And although I wasn't getting any feedback in the form of clapping, I was getting a lot of pretty similar, if not more in-depth feedback in the form of comments. And I would address, you know, how people address the comments and respond yeah. to questions and stuff. I just thought that was great. And I thought that I would do a bunch more, but the problem was I'd kind of pulled out all the stops for that one. I had all sorts of reasons to do it. And now, now I can't really think of a good reason to try to encourage. It's just, you know, same old thing. How do you get people to come to the gig? Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so I haven't, I haven't done it. I, I'm kind of waiting. I'm hoping someone will ask me to do some kind of thing at some point. 
That yeah, I did a, a few at the beginning in like radio stations and stuff uh, and, you know, uh, websites would ask me to do them. And those were good at the beginning. And then there was sort of a just a huge dip in anyone's interest because everyone right. started doing it. And so I just I didn't really love it. I didn't like I'm very like ADD. So like the comment I'm like in the middle of a song and someone makes a comment and I forget a lyric or, you know. Oh, yeah, I had to I had to make a firm rule not to look at the comments. I get distracted so easily and I forget the words <laughs> so often. I also had the lyrics up. That was one of the great things about it is oh, that I could have smart. the lyrics up on a big screen. I prepared it in advance. And yeah, it seems like we're going through these waves. And at first everyone was doing it. Some people would do it every day. Yeah, People have these different, people would, people would try to establish stake in the ground like times. Yeah. Breakfast with blah, 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 you know, coffee with, or like, you know, yeah, happy hour. <laughs> and yeah. I don't see as much of that anymore. I used to go on Facebook specifically to see who was streaming and I would go on and make a comment because I know how, how fun that was for people. Right. But now I, I don't see as much of it. Well, I had a friend that um, he, he's a songwriter, but he does a lot of like um, old honky tonk and Elvis songs and stuff. And like, that's how he made his living here in town. And he was doing one, like he'd do like Elvis night or like uh Merle Haggard songs or whatever, but then they did that uh, thing on Facebook where you can't do covers anymore. So right. he can't do that anymore, which was probably a, a pretty decent income stream for him. And he was doing it very regularly with like hundreds of people tuning in. So I, I feel very lucky that I don't make a living on the road because that would be super stressful. Yeah. You know, I, I really don't know what I would do. And I, like, I guess I do know what most musicians are doing, but I, it's still hard to fathom that people are, I mean, just trying to scrape together a living from tips associated with streaming to me, yeah. that, that causes anxiety just at the thought. Yeah. And I mean, like I, I had to bite the bullet and get uh, a like, you know, work from home job because there's no real end in sight right now um, for being able to go back out on the road to make enough money to cover all my expenses. So, yeah. But, you know, uh, being on the road at a certain level is a money losing proposition anyway. Yeah. Like, unless you're based on my calculations and experience, if you're drawing, let's say a hundred people in 10 or 20 cities, which is pretty good, right? Yeah. Um, is that making a living? I don't really think so. I don't know how people ever did it. I was at the opening act level. I worked a lot for a few years there, but still like a, when you're at the top of the opening act heap and you're getting great opening slots at, let's say Club Passim or the Iron Horse or yeah. uh, the old venue, the Tin Angel, all those places, you're only making $50. Really? Yeah. The, the uh, it might've gotten better. It might've gotten better. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I've done some opening slots where uh, I, usually it's about two to two fifty. I would say now. Um, but uh, on a regular gig that I'm playing um, just like as not, I mean, I guess technically the headliner or whatever, but not as like someone who's going to bring a ton of people. I usually clear somewhere between three to five. Uh, oh. But, but, you know, that we're talking weekends. We're not talking like a Tuesday in, in Boise, Idaho or something, you know? Right. That's where the rubber beats the road, right? Like right. how many of those can you string together? Well, yeah. when I was playing, like when I, let's see, um, at the Fillmore, an opening slot at the Fillmore, 
doesn't even pay as much as you're describing. Really? For, in a lot of situations, in a lot of situations for someone like me. So it's like the dream gigs, the gigs that you want the most maybe don't pay as well as like a bar gig. Yeah. So you have to make those choices because in a bar gig, you're not developing an audience. Most likely if you play for a thousand people at the Fillmore, more, you're more likely to interest people. It's, it's, it's a complicated calculus. Yeah. My mind's just blown that as an opening act and there's a thousand people at the Fillmore that they're giving you 50 bucks or whatever. No, not 50, not 50. Yeah, oh yeah. But. yeah. I can't, you know, I can't remember how much I get. I paid, I played there a couple of years ago with the weepies and I can't remember how much I got paid. You're awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of like bands that are for me at a very high level, like relative to where I'm at, where I where, love to where I've ever been. And they also complain about how hard it is to make a living. Yeah. So, so even if people can go on the road, uh, there's a large number of songwriters who seem to be touring as a main source of, 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 you know, of economic profit. And I, I often wonder if the world is big enough to support as many people that seem to be out there doing it. I don't, I don't understand how it works. Yeah. Well, I, I, I do think that like somewhere like a, a landing pad, like Nashville, there's definitely so many people um, within a, you know, five to six hour area that you can, you know, you can be in Charlotte in six hours or uh, I think Chicago's eight. Um, you know, there's, ton, you know, all these towns in Kentucky that are really great that love songwriters. And so there's a lot of places that you can go when you're localized in Nashville. And if, if you get more than three hours outside, then they're like, Oh, you're from Nashville and mm. they'll pay you a little bit more. But it definitely is like, I mean, I've, I've definitely slugged away at some shitty bar gig where, you know, you're going to make 700 bucks or something, but it's just, you know, three and a half hours of, you know, play Margaritaville and you're like, shit, that's not <laughs> the kind of stuff I do, but I really want this money. So, I mean, I've definitely done <laughs> that too. Yep. That's, that's one of the choices you can make, you know, 700 bucks for three hours seems okay. Right. That seems yeah. like the, I, always, I think of it in terms of in order to do a gig, there has to be something awesome about it. Right. And that awesome thing could be the money, but it also could be uh, who you're performing with and have a chance to become friends with, let's say. Right. right. You don't always become friends with the people you perform with, but at least, uh, at least it's an op, it's a possibility or maybe you're playing for a big audience. Like there has to be some, like maybe it'll be really fun for you in some way. I try to like think about it that way. Right? I always, yeah. I, I, when I do a run, I always have one that I may not love, but that's going to pay well because I need the money. And then I will, like you said, like you'll, you'll have one where you're opening for someone super cool for, you know, a hundred, couple hundred bucks. Uh, but it's, it's worth it because it's, that's what you want to do. And that's where you want to be seen, you know? But I just kind of balance it out knowing that like I'm going to have to play a few crappy gigs here and there to to make it financially worth it too. Yeah, I know what you mean. One of the one of the worst things that can happen is you get one of those great opening slots and something goes bad about it. Like you you just simply don't get to meet the headliner who you were dying to meet. <laughs> yeah. You know? Those are the those are the worst. Uh, it doesn't usually happen that way. Usually it's a, 
I mean, if you open for Bob Dylan, you're not supposed to look at him, right? But right, for yeah, most I think people, that's you get, <laughs> in the writer. Don't look at, directly at Bob Dylan. I've heard so many podcasts, interviews with musicians where they've been in bands that opened for Bob Dylan and they were told never to even look at Bob Dylan, but then they end up at least getting to say hello and have that satisfying interaction that you're dying for. Yeah. I, I, somebody told me they were on the road with, uh, I think it was like Drew Holcomb or something like that. And uh, they saw Bob Dylan at a gas station. He's like, I just got to go talk to him. And he goes, excuse me, I don't mean to bother you. And then Bob Dylan said, then why are you? <laughs> and walked away. <laughs> I've That's, heard a few of those kind of stories about Bob Dylan. I think he's got it. He's got that master. I mean, anyone who's seen "Don't Look Back" knows that that's a possibility. The possibility yeah. of getting creatively blown off is right there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> then why are you? That's it just one. adds to the the allure of him. I guess he's kind of like an asshole, but he can be. <laughs> I, I would not have gone up to him. I, I was sitting at a Starbucks in San Francisco, and Bob Mould sat down next to me. Yeah. And I could not for the life of me, figure out a reason to say anything to him. <laughs> I was at, I was at a Trader Joe's near my son's school and Mark Kozlek was buying flowers. Mark Kozlek from Sun Kill Moon and Red House Painters, which are okay. bands that I, I loved in my younger years. And I, you know, again, I just, I thought there was too much risk. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough. <reward>. Another <laughs> time. Never I meet was, your heroes. Yeah. <laughs> I was in the porta potty line backstage at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. Yeah. Behind Jesse Winchester. And Jesse Winchester, in my opinion, is one of the all-time greats. Yeah. And I did talk to him, but I couldn't think of what to say. And so I finally came up with something. I asked him about some song or something. And like, he said, oh, that song. And then it was his turn. <laughs> it was his turn at the porta potty. And the conversation was over because there was no way I was waiting outside the porta potty for Jesse Winchester. It was right. too creepy. Yeah. You so, got to know when to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you got to have good timing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like I just have not been that successful in my, you know, I either don't make the approach or I make it lamely. And so I tend to, I tend to err on the side of not making the approach. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, um, had any success with uh, radio in at least in California and stuff on the new records? No, I reached out yeah. to a bunch of radio stations on my album inside and terrified. And it's got a couple spins on like special, you know, folk shows. Cool. There's a couple of folk DJs who always play my music. Maybe there's two. I think I've added a third, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, an old DJ friend of mine, Marilyn Ray Byer has this show, The Midnight Special in Chicago, and I've been waiting to see her spin, and I know she's going to. But, you know, I, I just, I haven't had a lot of luck. Uh, I haven't had a lot of luck even getting responses from radio. It's so tough when you, you know, you mentioned earlier, you'd be in your own publicist. It's so tough when you do that because... Um, People don't, because I, that's what I did with this EP. It's, I mean, we're in the same exact boat. Like I bought the equipment and I, I did all the mixing and mastering myself. And um, I, I do, I'm doing all my own PR because I can't afford anything, you know? And it's, it's hard because you don't get the responses like you would necessarily if someone did it on your behalf. And even like for this show, uh, there's, there's many times where I get emails and, I, I just, if, when you, 
are working with people who are people, that's like basically all you're working with. And then someone like comes in on their own, you don't necessarily, is it's like, you don't have someone on your behalf helping you promote it. This is going to be a lot more work for me is what my thought process is. But with, when you emailed me your stuff and I heard it and it was incredible, sometimes you do take the risk, but it, it, it's just, you know, you probably are in the same boat as me where like the emails just aren't coming in as often as if they were through a PR agent or something like that. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a tricky one. Um, I feel like the, the thing that I can do that my publicist can't is that I can send a personal email. Yeah. I don't reach out to people if I don't think it's right. So when I reached out to you, I, I'd come across your podcast somewhere. It just seemed like to me, like a really obvious fit. And so I was able to reach out to you in like a authentic way. And also you're kind of in my, as you said, you're kind of in my position. Right. So I feel like it syncs up somewhere and there's like a, there's like a, a spiritual <laughs> connection waiting to happen. Yeah. Uh, and that can happen with a, someone that works at a magazine or a DJ, but if it's, I'm actually not that mystical of a guy, but like, I feel like if I'm my authentic self and I have a reason to reach out with someone that it's reasonable to reach out. That's why I reached out to Peter Case and yeah. I'm now friends with, you know, that's why I've reached out to various people. Sometimes you get, you still get ignored or you still get blown off. Um, who knows why those things happen. But if you can send a meaningful personal email to someone instead of a form letter, I feel like it, it's a different kind of approach that can have different kind of results. Yeah, for sure. Do you practice uh, like daily or weekly? Do you have like a schedule of, of, writing or is it more like when the muse comes to you? I believe in writing more and better songs. And I learned that philosophy when I went to Jack Hardy's weekly songwriters meeting for many years in the nineties, the idea was to write a song a week. Yeah. And then, you know, you would get feedback on the song from your peers, but the, the point for him was always, he would tell me, you think I do this because I want people to tell me what's good and bad about my song. No, it's because I need a deadline. And so I learned pretty early that a deadline would work for me. Yeah. And so over the years, I've created a world for myself where I have a deadline. And so I don't believe in waiting. I, I mean, there's obviously, val like, for me, like inspiration is the same thing as having an idea for a song. And sometimes I have an idea for a song and sometimes I don't. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to, either way, I can write a song. Yeah. If I don't have an idea, I don't sit around waiting because I've got a deadline. In this case, I actually have a Monday night, another Monday night meeting that I've kind of created for myself. I have a Zoom meeting with a bunch of songwriters. And so I got to finish a song by Monday. And so this week, I didn't have a good idea. Last week, I had a couple good ideas. I wrote two songs. And it wasn't that hard. I mean, it was hard. It's always hard. But it wasn't like pulling teeth. Yeah, because I had something I wanted to say. This week I didn't have anything at all I wanted to say, and so I've kind of been grinding it out. But I can guarantee you that I will finish a song by Monday where I didn't have the idea for it last Monday or Tuesday, for that matter. So you know, my thing is a combination of like, yeah, it's great when you have ideas, but if you don't, you can still do the work. You can still, if you're on ten hour up, you can find an idea, and you can work it into shape. And that's the process I love. Yeah. So you're not necessarily always writing with an album in mind. You're just writing to keep that muscle strong. Absolutely. I, it, it, for me, it's about the whole thing is about the process. 
Yeah. What I care about is trying to write great songs. Once in a while, I write a good song. A lot of times there's something good about the song, but it doesn't work on the whole. I want to keep going. And there are times where I, I, I get an, if I have three songs of a certain type, like, let's say I have, at one point I had three songs about the Los Angeles Lakers. Okay. <laughs> it occurred <laughs> to me then that I should write two more about the Lakers and maybe I can make an EP about it, but that's as far as that goes. Um, I don't, I don't just start writing when there's a project. When I was making my album that came out in 2019, some of us are free. Some of us are lost. Mm-hmm. I was involved in like a weekly songwriting thing back then, different from the one I have now, but I wrote songs through that whole process. Like I, I started a song that made the album during a mixing session because I had to finish it for the next Monday. If I didn't have that deadline, I wouldn't have written it. And it certainly wouldn't have made, you know, there wouldn't have been that song on the album. So like, I just try to put my, I try to paint myself into a corner basically where I have to do it. And I'm always happy that I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's a great let me get my mind around this. That's a great way to look at it, to, to force yourself, you know, rain or shine, I'm going to finish this because I know, and I know that a lot of people that I have talked to, songwriter friends, people on the podcast, uh, creatives in general, have had a really tough time in this um, pandemic with writing. And I know that part of that is um, not having anything around to inspire, you know, just being stuck in your house. But I know that also part of that is like, you know, some, a lot of people are dealing with depression and things like that, but to have a set schedule for a lot of people that really would help them out. And that's something that I definitely need to work on because (laughs) I think I've written like four songs in the pen in the pandemic so far. I've written 50. Wow. (laughs) Right, Actually, so 52. I got to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, at first I was kind of on fire. You yeah. Know, I, 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 I wasn't driving around. And so in addition to doing music, I'm a little league baseball coach for my kids. And I'm yeah. really into that. And that got canceled. Like a lot of things in my life that, ha- that drew my mind, that, had, that competed for space in my mind were canceled. And then I was monitoring homeschool. And I was only required to participate in bursts. So I have to say that in addition to having an inherent motivation, uh, the context was right to ramp up my songwriting habit. Yeah, there's a lot of space for output is what kind of- the- Yeah, like I'd be sitting on the couch and no one would need me and I didn't have to go anywhere or think about anything. And so I would just uh, you know, get into songwriting mode. So I feel like I was kind of set up for success, but now that I've, I don't think even in the, in the Jack Hardy songwriters meeting years, I don't think I ever wrote a song a week for a year. That's, that's, to me, that's like, you hear about people, you know, like Ryan Adams or someone, Dan Burns like this, where they, they can write like 10 songs a day. Yeah. You know, I have a friend, a good friend, Tim Robinson. We'll finish our meeting on Monday night and he'll send me a song at noon on Tuesday. And I think I actually need to call him and tell him to stop doing that because it really <laughs> stresses me out. Like I, I, like I can write a song a week, like, but my process is not sit down and write a song beginning to end and have it be amazing. <laughs> like Tim's are. Yeah. My process is more to rest. I do a lot of wrestling. Yes. That you know? similar, yeah. yeah. And so like, I'm really into like how the lines flow and like, you know, I like really, I want everything to sound right and mean the right thing. And so I tend to wrestle with, I could wrestle with a line for a day and 
you know, apparently it comes more easily for Tim or for, let's say, Ryan Adams. Uh, you know, I don't, I can't totally relate to that, but I, I tend to pontificate if I, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to someone who wants to write more songs, and I, I do talk to a lot of people like that because it basically describes every songwriter, right? Right. <laughs> if I'm talking to someone like that, I, I, t- I tend to get on my high horse about how you can write more songs if you want to. You just have to commit to the process. Yeah. You know, barring anything like all of your time's committed, but even if, or, you know, let's say depression or something, but even if all of your time is committed to a day job, let's say, I still feel like you can work on songs. You can do the wrestling in the margins, in the margins of your day. When you're walking to the bathroom, you can wrestle if you want to, but you have to want to. Well, you can get up an hour earlier. I mean, people do that for exercise all the time. They find the, the time to do, you find time to do things that you love. So even if, yes, you're busy, you can still get up an hour earlier or, you know, turn off the TV for an hour. There's always ways that you can fit in more. Dude, I write songs while I'm watching TV. Really? I, I, unless I'm talking, like right now I'm not working on a song, but because I'm on this weekly thing, like pretty much every moment that's not occupied, I'm thinking about a song. And that's, I've forced myself, I've painted myself into that corner yeah. And it's like a really enjoyable corner to be in, even though it's at times like, well, let me say, let me say it this way. The, the minute I finish a song, I'm panicked that I'll never write another song. And so there may be some downtime where I, I feel despair. And my yeah. wife's like really sick of it where I say like, what if I never write a song again? But, you know, I've written two songs the week before, you know, like <laughs> it's stupid. I know, I know the process. And so I know it'll come back around, but there are lots of times where I feel immense frustration bordering on despair but because i've done it so many times i've been working on this for 25 years because i've done it so many times intellectually i know that i'll be able to get to the end and so with that with that in mind with that horizon in mind i could usually navigate the the lows that's that's really that's probably the best advice i've gotten on this podcast for for writing that's awesome thank you for that (laughs) Um, that was my pleasure and it's free. <laughs> <laughs> you send the bill, the bill in the mail. Yeah. It's like a, a sort of a hundred dollars for a 50 minute hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I asked Bob to play a live version of one of his songs and he chose, I often dream of candlelight. Here it is. I often dream of candlelight, the flame of human appetite, bluish-yellow flickering at night. Incandescent breathing space partially illuminates the restlessness and hunger in your face. Consciousness murmuring in obvious distress, undergoing privately the usual anxiety, the movements of your lips bewitches me.
Buried under, bundled up in blankets Eyes shut tight against an old familiar ache The fear that you will have to face the future fully awake But the future has been written Receive it on our morning walk Serious and colorful in chalk Words and pictures brought to you By cheerful sidewalk artists Who have never seen or even heard of blue I won't call today a celebration I don't have a plan to make a plan to understand You will have to fight through every night in fantasy land Well, that's it for this episode of the Americana Station podcast. I am your host, Will Payne Harrison. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Bob Hillman, for being on the podcast. Stick around because there's a lot more to come. We've got Strays Don't Sleep. We've got Robert Henry and uh, Nashville Noise editor Cody Howell. And there's a lot more to come uh, in the following month or two. So stick around. uh, Make sure that you are following and uh, rate and review. And we'll see you next time. Take